0: The material contained in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. You should not act or fail to act on anything based on any of the material contained herein without first consulting with a lawyer. My guests and I strive to ensure accuracy in this podcast, but we do not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any of its contents. Welcome to Food Court, a podcast exploring issues in food and law. I'm your host, Glenford Jameson. I'm a food lawyer in Toronto, and I run GS Jameson & Company, a law firm that services clients in the food sector, including not-for-profits, charities, startups, and small and medium-sized enterprises. So what is Food Court? Well, on this podcast, I'll be speaking with colleagues and professionals about what they do, about how food affects our lives, about food law and policy, and about virtually anything from agricultural production to novel foods to nutrition and digestion. I hope you find the contents of this podcast as interesting as I do, and I welcome you to join in our conversation, where I can be found as at GS Jameson on Twitter or Instagram, or on our website at food.gsjameson.com. Lastly, I ask that you remember that nothing here is meant to be considered legal advice. Thanks for listening. Abir Day is here to talk about his work on open-source seed and seed security. As a pleasant change of pace, Abir is not a lawyer. He has a background in business, environmental studies, and seed growouts, And accordingly, it's the first podcast in which we spend a little less time on the law part of food law. Let this not be a reflection of Abir. Quite the opposite. In fact, when he came into studio, he was prepared and eager to talk about Canada's regulatory framework. The changes contained in Bill C-18, now the Agricultural Growth Act, and Canada's various international treaty obligations respecting intellectual property and plant breeders' rights. What we did instead was spend considerable time talking about the strange place that the Bouda Family Initiative for Seed Security, that's the organization with which Abir works, running its Ontario operations, uh, or other not-for-profits find themselves today in trying to develop a domestic seed network or marketplace. One of the key tasks that Abir and Bauda work on is creating a domestic seed system for ecologically grown plants that can provide for Canada if its international seed sourcing runs out or becomes impractical. The concept is seed sovereignty. It's the local seed from which local food should ideally be grown. And Abir is asked to do this with extremely limited funding and virtually no governmental support. Now, be forewarned, as in any good food policy discussion, the word paradox is used more than once here, but in a time when more people are viewing food strategy as a matter of public safety, it seems odd that there is so little attention paid to such a dynamic and engaging matter. This podcast is in two parts. The first part relates to the importance of seed security. Imagining a farmer's market without beets or kale, a real possibility, and laying out the seed market landscape in Canada. The second part is more focused on legal aspects of the farmer's relationship to international treaties and domestic frameworks, as well as Canada's obligations to those treaties. We also cover whether or not supervillains reside deep within the Svalbard Global Seed Vault and get caught in a rainstorm. Here's part one of episode three, with Abir Day joining me in studio in Toronto. What's the Bouda Institute
1: for Seed Security? Uh, other than being like the longest name for an initiative ever, uh, it's uh, the Bouda Family Initiative on Canadian Seed Security. And it is a four-year program that is funded by the Weston Foundation uh, through this woman named Gretchen Bouda, who uh, had a passionate understanding of seed security through some personal activities and some professional work. and. Uh, Worked with a variety of different nonprofit stakeholders to provide funding for this initiative, and the lead stakeholder in that program is an organization called USC Canada, and they're an international nonprofit organization that works with farmers and primarily smallholder farmers in different parts of the world, from Honduras to India to Nepal, and uh, their focus is on building uh, seed security for smallholder farmers where. The needs for food security and seed security are much more, maybe not more important, but much more like evident and like visible than we would experience here in Canada. And one of the one of the criticisms that they were getting as an organization was, well, why don't you have a program like this in 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 Canada? Um, and up until the Better Initiative came along, they never really had uh, the resources to, to to do work in in this country. Um, and part of what makes their work really meaningful in international spaces is that they work with organizations that are on the ground trying to service and work with uh, that have that have already been working with farmers and the stakeholders that they're trying to trying to engage with so they adopted the same approach in Canada and worked with this organization called Seeds of Diversity Canada that has been doing work on conservation of of Canadian seed varieties for decades and you know from Uh, A conversation with the executive director at Seeds of Diversity, Um, this kind of program took shape. And uh, basically what it's turned out to be is a national nonprofit initiative that's being housed at different organizations across the country to focus on building seed security in Canada.
0: I think that most of us are familiar with with food security generally as a concept or the idea of being food insecure. The idea of seed security for me, is a relatively new one. So, how do you measure? How
1: do you think about seed security or insecurity? Well, kind of what we always tell folks is that good food comes from good seed, and um, you could extend that kind of philosophy and say, you know, local food should come from local seed, and organic seed should come from organic food should come from organic seed. Um, and the emphasis of, of our work is to kind of close those loops and to make those connections that all the food that we eat, we can't have it without good quality seed uh, to grow that food. And that connection, like it seems super intuitive. You're like, yeah, of, of course, like you need seeds to grow food, but I don't know how visible that process is for a lot of folks. And and what we found, even to a lot of folks that have been involved in the food sector for, for a long period of time, haven't made that connection as explicitly as we're making in our work. That like, if we want to talk and have meaningful transformational conversations on food security, we have to make that link with with seed security. So I guess what you're
0: saying to me right now is that we don't have access to good quality local seed or a seed system. Is that right? I, it's something that I've never really thought about. I mean, I've spent a little bit of time with you talking about about uh, growing out seed and, and talking about where seed comes from, and something that we've talked about a little bit is this idea of uh, of supply problems. And So how can that be? So where does our seed come from right now? We should narrow this down. So let's let's use the beet as an example. You
1: were growing beets this year, sure. You know, and so much of this, as we were talking about earlier, uh, kind of comes down to like visibility of the problem. If you want beets as a consumer. You can go to a grocery store and get beets pretty easily, um, and you don't have to think about you know where those beets are coming from. Sometimes it's from Ontario, sometimes it's from California or, or Oregon or wherever. Um, but you know most people don't necessarily make that connection. They're doing it more now with local food. That same sort of connection needs to needs needs to be made with seed. Um, if you want seeds as a gardener or as a farmer, you can just go to an online seed catalog and just purchase seeds and you don't have to think about where those seeds are coming from. But it's that same sort of search that is going to reveal some really interesting relationships in terms of how that seed is produced and where it comes from. So going back to beets for example, we grow tons of beets. Uh, There's not a single market gardener in Ontario that isn't generating a reasonable portion of their revenue from beet sales at farm stands or CSAs or wholesale sales or whatever. The majority of our beet seed comes from the Pacific Northwest of of the States, uh, California and Oregon. Both of those places wholesale lots of beet seed to tons of different companies and seed companies um, to sell in small packets or to resell in trade packs to farmers. That seed is all coming from just like two locations in America. I mean, and there's other locations in Israel and in Europe, But this idea that, you know, we want to be able to grow and provide local beets, but we're okay with our seed just coming from halfway across the world, there's some tensions and some problems in that. You know, if there's a beet seed crop failure in Oregon and a beet seed crop failure in California, all of a sudden we don't don't have beets anymore. And like, no beets.
0: (laughs) Farmer's markets, just people walking away mortified without (laughs) bloody red hands.
1: You know, maybe a lot of people are really happy about that. Um, if they don't like beets. And frankly, I, I don't know how you, how you couldn't like beets. Um, <laughs> it starts to bring up really interesting questions in terms of, okay, well, where does our lettuce seed come from? Where does our carrot seed come from? Where does any of the vegetable seed that we grow as market gardeners and as gardeners and as farmers, um, where's all of that coming from? And and the answer to that is, is that it's it's not really coming from Canada. There's Lots of small scale seed companies that sell lots of really good quality seed in small packets to the average sort of backyard gardener and hobbyist gardener. and sometimes they can also sell larger quantities to farmers. But for the most part, farmers in Ontario and in Canada are getting their seed um, from international sources. So I can I can perceive like a few basic problems with that. Like historically, national borders
0: are an issue with controlling seed. I mean, we can go back to sort of like the English and Chinese opium wars way, way back in the control of tea seeds. Uh, they were not allowed to leave Chinese borders. But even like up until today, the export of teff seeds in Ethiopia is, is I'm pretty sure, still illegal. Uh, and that's really stunted sort of an international uh, trade in teff seed, but it, it's meant to keep the world sort of dependent on Ethiopian theft. And so for us to depend on international seed from a political or like a nationalistic standpoint is, is inherently dangerous.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really um, like precarious position to be in. It might sound like we're overstating the the issue because, you know, like what's the problem? Like farmers are able to get seed and we're able to get seed Then you know, like, do we really need to make a big stink about it? And I think we're not advocating for all types of seed to be grown here in Canada. There's some climatic restrictions for, for a lot of crops, but to you know, craft a conversation about, to, to craft work to be done on, on the local food movement and to advocate for all these things about local food and then to not have some meaningful work being done on on seed production in this sector, I think is, is, is a huge gap that needs to, that needs to get filled. And it's a huge gap that farmers have asked to kind of get filled. A common example is uh, is kale. Uh, again, same sort of deal, right? Like lots of farmers markets, you know, ever since uh, Oprah would start talking about it, has been selling kale like by the by the bushels. And every year there is like a shortage of kale seed. Like, and unless you order in like November or December, you're, like you're running out of like some of the top varieties of kale as a as a market gardener as a farmer. You know if you're calling and you talk to a seed company they're like oh yeah well that seed hasn't come in from europe yet and you're just like like, excuse me europe yeah you're kind of confused at like well why why are we waiting for it to come from europe and why don't we have like a local you're calling a canadian company who's giving that answer and like it begs the question it's like well why don't we have a local kale seed producer it seems like a sensible thing to do and it seems like something that would be much more protected from Political ramifications of international trade, climate change,
0: or sort of environmental changes that we're experiencing
1: too. Right. To say nothing of the importance of regionally adapted seed. Local food should come from local seed. I'll, I'll say that again, and you know that's important from from a philosophical level, but also from an ecological level. You know, depending on how much credence you want to put on the climate change argument, a lot of farmers would would argue that anecdotally that seed that they have saved year after year. On their own farms have been adapted to those climatic conditions and then in subsequent generations would perform better in their fields and you know that's not always true but there is an important ethic to think about in that argument with pending changes in climates we can't rely on perfectly grown beet seed coming from a climate like california to be grown here in ontario because our climate is completely different than that and if there are changes that happen in the future we need to have seeds that are regionally adapted to the growing regions that food is being produced in um, and that's that's a really long-term vision so it's hard to think about that in a in an immediate sense but it's but it's immensely important when you start to bring in those conversations of food security in the long term you need to have seed security in the long term and especially when you start talking about regional adaptation you know wh- whether it's just for crop performance um, in terms of yields and flavor and nutrition but also in terms of pests problems and disease problems and you know, a whole suite of agronomic characteristics that are important.
0: Well, and this is something that like, almost every grade 10 history student in Canada comes across a page in their history textbook of, <laughs> of scientists in the 20s or 30s concocting red fife wheat right. and how that opened up uh, the Canadian West to a lot of wheat farming. Mm-hmm. So this isn't really happening at a national level anymore. Then. If, there's no, if, if seed security is an issue, then, then where are our public actors on that? I always thought they were a principal player in this.
1: Yeah, well, um, I should clarify a bit. Um, for vegetable seed, our seed supply is almost entirely dependent on international actors, um, especially for uh, the organic sector and for farmers that ascribe to organic but don't certify. For grains, it's a little different. We can grow really good grains here in Canada and we don't have the same sort of production problems uh, as we would for, for vegetable seed. Um, the challenge for uh, grain production in, and, and field crop production in Ontario is that all of the breeding that has been done historically has been done um, in, in the public sector and has been funded by the government and, and for wheat that still sort of exists in Canada most of the breeding that gets done for wheat is is publicly funded. But for tons of other field crop, that, that responsibility has just been adopted by the private sector. Okay. And that's really challenging because to kind of focus the audience on um, organic and ecological growers, none of the breeding work that's being done, either in the public or private s- space, is being done with a mind for uh, breeding varieties that are suitable for organic and ecological farmers. So in that scenario, the gap is... You know we don't have varieties that are adapted to organic systems all of the varieties that are in use right now all the wheats all the soybeans barley rye whatever um, that's all been bred under conventional breeding systems and what what that essentially means is that um, those crops like a wheat crop would be grown and bred for subsequent generations in a setting that is using inputs that organic farmers or ecological growers wouldn't be using. So those varieties are, you know, performing really well, but their performance is dependent on all of these additional inputs and are not being tested by the organic farmers and growers that would ultimately be using them. So for Canadian field crops like wheat, the gap here is that we don't have enough sort of support being put into breeding and developing varieties for organic growers.
0: So then like I guess what you're saying to me is that seed if you can procure organic seed or seed that's suitable for ecological growing, it's going to cost a fortune, right? If no one is is actively developing this stuff, then demand has got to be crazy. Like organic organic food is essentially the story of the last 15 years in in the food sector from a retail perspective. It's completely exploded from this uh, fringe novelty to an expectation of almost every consumer in Canada to be able to access this stuff. If there's no seed, where are where are the seed producers?
1: Yeah, no, it's a uh, and again, it, it's it's important to maybe differentiate between vegetables and and field crops. I explained before about 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 vegetables in the sense that it's international supply. That makes it difficult to build a local supply, and that needs to that needs to just grow in terms of more farmers growing more seed. For field crops, it's a little bit more confusing and challenging. Um, we have a very uh, a strict kind of regulatory system on how field crops uh, seed gets sold and uh, distributed to farmers in in Canada. And um, initially, these sorts of restrictions were put in place. Um, with the um, sort of philosophy that bad seed shouldn't be circulated. You know, there should be controls and checks and measures to make sure that farmers, like you know, it's like there's you can't have a snake oil salesman selling you bad seed, right? Like that's why a lot of the restrictions and a lot lot of the regulations that we have today come out of that sort of principle. What that's sort of done, without going into too much detail on how that works, is that it's restricted the development of... um, varieties that are suitable for organic systems and in order to release organic varieties um, through the system it's a it's an incredibly expensive and very very high cost process and just to sustain and to sell those varieties is often really cost prohibitive for growers so if you're an organic grower and you want to purchase um, a certified organic wheat seed you're going to purchase a lot of that wheat seed up front from a certified organic seed dealer as a farmer you've paid like a significant premium for that for that seed um you're not going to go back to that seed dealer the next year you're going to save a lot of that seed this is what farmers have been doing for millennia right like this is this is their right to be able to do that the problem is is that for the organic sector that certified organic seed dealer that's putting all the investment to be growing good quality or high quality organic seed you know, has no incentive to continue to, to sell that because they lose their customers every year. And if a farmer needs to restock on that seed, um, they'll come back to that seed dealer You know, maybe three or four years. This is the story for a lot of organic seed companies in Canada that have been selling certified organic field crop seed, why they just have kind of dropped. Because there is this, the cost to push organic seed through the regulatory system in order for it to be sellable is so high that the market isn't able to support that. The market dynamics, the reality of farmers saving seed year to year, which which we still want to happen, we don't want that to stop, um, makes it very very difficult to. Uh, ensure that there is a diversity and a large quantity of organic field crop seed available in the market. It's a really fascinating paradox that exists, and it's not necessarily clear how, how that can necessarily be addressed or fixed in the system, because we want certain checks and balances in place on a regulatory level to ensure that we have high quality seed coming through the system. We also want farmers to be able to save their seed because that's that's their right as a, as a farmer and as a producer of food for society. Um, but somewhere in that space, there needs to be some sort of leeway and some, something's gotta give in that sector in order to make uh, the varieties that are available for organic production you know, uh, more, more, more available. And um, part of our, our, our work is trying to figure out and to, to interact with different stakeholders on how to make that happen. Um, and to your earlier question, this is kind of where we need to have a sophisticated debate with public actors to figure out how to adjust and how to modify certain regulatory schemes and introduce different types of funding opportunities to make this make this type of problem subside a little bit and, 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 and work towards making these types of varieties of seed more readily available and accessible without disadvantaging the seed dealer or the farmer? That's a fine
0: balance. That's man, I could pepper you with questions all day, but maybe this is a good time to to really talk about what the organization's core function is. So so what do you do with them?
1: so the 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 broad objective of the program is to help farmers and support farmers in growing a diversity of high quality, regionally adapted seed. Um, and improving the quantity, quality, and diversity of of that seed that's being produced. Um, How that happens is through a number of different support programs and um, uh, networks that we've built to uh, advance this type of work. So a lot of that includes on-farm research programs where we support um, farmers in growing out different varieties of seed and helping farmers scaling up those varieties of seed to be redistributed to other farmers and also um, kind of released into the public domain. Um, for the field crop side of things, as we were talking about, <coughs> um, we work with the University of Manitoba to, to run the only uh, organic plant breeding program in, uh, in Canada um, for organic varieties of wheat, oats, and potatoes. And the way that program uh, is administered um, in a really visionary way by the folks at University of Manitoba um, with support from 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 all the f- uh, staff members of the Bowdoin Initiative is through a model called participatory plant breeding. <clears throat> and the way that works is um, the initial sort of varieties um, are developed at the University of Manitoba and then the populations uh, that come out of um, those developments are distributed to farmers all over the country. Um, so in traditional breeding programs, what would happen is all of that work would happen at like a research farm or a research station. And what we've been able to do with our program and with the funding that we've been given is distribute the, all the trials that are happening for those um, new populations of wheat, oats, and potatoes that are being bred to be trialed at different farms um, all over the country. And what that essentially means is that instead of a breeder um working and making all of the selections of those varieties and, and then releasing and commercializing a variety, the farmer itself gets to be an active participant in the research by doing all of the selections, essentially growing out the varieties in the fields that those varieties are ultimately going to be grown in. So all of the early stages of selection of different crops. Um, the farmer has an opportunity to provide their input. And, you know, a farmer and what our breeder always says at the University of Manitoba is that, like, a farmer's not doing anything different than a breeder is. Uh, if anything, the, the way they're doing the work is more, per, is more beneficial for, for the entire system because nobody knows a crop better than a farmer does and nobody knows how that crop is going to perform better than a farmer does in their field. And to be able to gather all that input through years and years and years of selection is a really interesting thing. And it's like a a complete, like it's a unique thing that's happening in Canada that happens all over the world, but hasn't really um, happened in this country. And what we're able to do with this program is kind of bring together input from farmers from coast to coast to develop new varieties that have been tested on organic fields, by farmers who are going to be growing those varieties um, as a whole, and you know we we've been able to do this through a really innovative funding partnership with the University of Manitoba. That the challenge for this is that our program is going to finish in in 2017, okay. and you know this is where you get into some really interesting questions about how how you can sustain this work after the fact. Um, there's tons of other programs that we do in terms of uh, farmer training and different types of community and network building, um, activities, you know, which could theoretically be carried on by a lot of the organizations that we work with. But the breeding program that I was talking about, that's a significant chunk and a a huge investment uh, of the program to focus on, on continuing the work. And, um, it's just really interesting to figure out like how we would be able to continue that work, because it's such a sizable chunk of, uh, of of the financial contributions of this project. And to, to relate back to what we were talking about before in terms of what the public's role in this is, is like we start to think of some really interesting questions in terms of how we can continue to fund uh, this work and have it remain in the public domain.
0: So that's this is interesting. So well, what I'm hearing is that farmers are reasonably good at producing seeds to the point where it's difficult to sustain a seed-growing business independent of, of some form of public or private support, and that uh, our public institutions aren't terribly interested in uh, creating a domestic seed market for certain crops, so for, for those ecologically grown uh, vegetable crops. So with Bauda, Bauda has essentially filled that gap. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's a a really apt summary. Um, We're trying to do the work that has traditionally been done um, by the public sector. Um, And we're a number of nonprofit organizations uh, from BC to Atlantic Canada that are trying to, you know, fill this gap. For farmers that would otherwise really not have many other organizations to reach out to that can service them in these types of needs. Um, Traditionally, this work was done, and like you know, even just as short as 50 years ago um, by the public sector um, through different government funded agricultural extension programs, and public breeding programs. Um, That has kind of steadily declined over the past 50 years. And, you know, it's resting on nonprofit organizations to fill that gap. And that's a really challenging and tall order to ask for, for nonprofits that historically have been, especially in the food sector, underfunded, under resourced, have very precarious sort of uh, uh, f- uh, funding situations. It, it's it's work that used to be done by the public sector that we're kind of now trying to fill that fill that gap.
0: We're just finished an eleven week election campaign, and I can't think of a moment where we've actually talked about food policy. Never mind seed uh, seed policy. We've passed a major act on this stuff. Uh, well, what's even more confounding for me is when you look at uh, sort of the international scene. there is recently a major event that engages in this idea of conserving uh, and improving uh, existing varieties of, of grain. Uh, something that caught my news was the International Center for Agricultural Research in Dry Areas uh, in Lebanon uh, near Syria needed to, which is essentially like the backup for farmers in the Middle East in a lot of ways for seed, uh, had to make a call on the Svalbard Global Seed Vault uh, in Norway to recall seed to replenish things that have been lost. Uh, according to the news, it's related to the conflict in Syria. That should be terrifying for everyone, and that should be like a real, a real issue to make everyone sort of pause and look at how we're treating our seed and how flexible our seed is to to change to whatever the 21st century is going to hold for it. Uh, why do you think it's so hard to have a an open discussion about? about creating public engagement in, in the seed discussion. I mean, we're so comfortable, most people are literate in, in local food or literate in, in where their food comes from and, and talking to farmers and engaging. And we're seeing that with the proliferation across Canada of farmer's markets. But I just, I, I don't see a discussion about this happening. And frankly, until I, uh, until I met you, I don't think that I'd had one.
1: The conversation on you know the local food movement as it exists right now is still relatively young you know, and uh, it's very easy for us to throw up our arms and, like, you know, think about, like, you know, why aren't people talking about this and why aren't people thinking about this? But it's, you know, this stuff happens very, very, very slowly. And this is not, you know, a sexy issue. And it's...
0: That vault is so sexy. In Norway, (laughs) cutting out of a mountain. It's a suit.
1: Superheroes or villains live in there amongst the sea. Like, it's incredible. (laughs) It's uh, it's guarded by polar bears, all this kind of stuff. Um, I think the important... So, like, yes, we can't get... um, It's understandable that people aren't thinking about these things because there's a lot of issues in the world to think about and it's hard to have a conversation about something that's not an immediate crisis. Um, But that example that you just showed is kind of what we want to avoid, right? Like that vault exists as like like the last resort. It's a really good thing if we don't access it, right? We shouldn't really have to have that vault at all all those varieties that are in that bank should be in the hands of farmers and seed growers and it should be actively being grown all the time and conserved um, through, you know, the work of farmers, seed growers, and citizens. If it's in a bank and it's in a vault, then it's not being grown, it's not being tested, you don't know if those varieties are really going to be good anymore. Like, it's that whole idea of the value of ex-situ conservation versus in-situ conservation. And, and what we wanna advocate through our work is to make on-farm conservation of seed varieties a, a normal thing. Part of how to have more of that conversation is you know, through opportunities like this and through engagement. But like, I guess we also have to think about, like, we don't want a crisis to happen right that's why we're doing this work there's no kicks that we're going to get if you know we have to reach into our gene banks and start growing that seed and say like I told you so right that's not that's there's no joy that we get out of out of that happening right we want to preemptively sort of address that issue the best the best we can and it's really hard to adopt that long-term view of how important this work is when again you can just kind of order a packet of seed from you know whatever seed company is available and, and able to sell it. So it's it's very challenging to have that conversation because the crisis is not as immediate. And to even frame it as a crisis, I don't I don't like doing it. But it is important to whenever we're having discussions on local food and food policy and food systems to kind of reintroduce and ask the question where that where that's all coming from, and it's all coming from seeds. I don't know what the answer is in, in terms of why people aren't thinking that way, but we have to challenge ourselves to think deeper about, you know, the issues of the food system and get at the core of where all that comes from.
0: Right. Well, I mean, we come from the land of milk and honey. Like, why <laughs> would there ever be a shortage of any sort of food outside of very, uh, very specific examples? So I think that's the attitude of the average Canadian. Even, I mean, for me, and I, I work in this space, I, I was unaware that there was such a demand for seed in certain varieties it's to the extent that certain regulations the organic regulations for example recognize that well organic seeds hard to get if you can't get that organic seed then get the next best thing and then just treat it organic and then we'll market organic anyway it's like that's weird that's shocking i didn't realize that was part of the deal
1: yeah that's that's in the that's in the regulations and that's an acknowledgement of the governing body to say like wow we um, there is a huge shortage in organic seed supply this is you can't mandate farmers to buy organic seed when there isn't that seed available. this was like way back when, like, you know, when the regulations were being established, so organic seed is much more available now, but the local version of that is not. And even for a lot of varieties, the organic versions of, of, of that still doesn't exist. Yeah. And it's a, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting paradox, but like to make that sort of stipulation in the regulation and then just to leave it at that seems sort of bizarre. Right? Like there's been an acknowledgement that there's a lack. Shouldn't that send a signal to say we need to figure out how to invest and grow this so that, you know, we don't have to have this kind of regulation or this exemption in the first place? You know, that's always been something that's confused me, is that like, you know that this is a shortage. Why can't we devote more of our conversations to this? Why can't we devote more of our resources to this? Because it's certainly something that that's a gap that exists that you've identified. Um, let's figure out how to solve it.
0: That was part one of two with Abir Day from the Bouda Family Initiative on Canadian Seed Security. In the second part, we speak more specifically about treaties, laws, and regulations as they pertain to conventional and ecological seed, the reshaping of farmers' rights to save seed into a privilege, and the farmer's role as a public service. You'll find the link to the second part of our discussion at the bottom of the Welcome to the Food Chord podcast blog post, or as the next podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. It'll be posted roughly a day after this episode. Also, please check out the links on our site to the Bouda Initiative, Seeds of Diversity, USC Canada, and other organizations to learn more about this subject matter. Thanks, as always, to Shane McPherson for the excellent music. Part two is coming up soon.